scripture lesson this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree was issued by the Emperor Augustus for a registration throughout the Roman world. This was the first registration of its kind. It took place when Curius was governor of Syria. For this purpose, everyone made his way to his own town, and so Joseph went up to Judea from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to register at the city of David called Bethlehem because he was of the house of David by descent. And with him went Mary, who was betrothed to him. She was expecting a child, and while they were there, the time came for her child to be born, and she gave birth to a son, her firstborn. She wrapped him in his swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them to lodge in the house. Now in the same district, there was shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch through the night over their flock. When suddenly there stood before them an angel of the Lord, and the splendor of the Lord shone round them. They were terror-stricken, but the angel said, Do not be afraid. I have good news for you. There is great joy coming to the whole people. Today in the city of David, a deliverer has been born to you, the Messiah, the Lord. And this is your sign. You will find a baby lying wrapped in his swaddling clothes, in a manger. All at once there was with the angel a great company of the heavenly hosts singing the praises of God. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, his peace for men on whom his favor rests. After the angels have left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Come, we must go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with all speed and found their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the manger. When they saw him, they recounted what they had been told about this child, and all who heard were astonished at what the shepherd said. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered over them. Meanwhile, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for what they had heard and seen. It had all happened as they had been told. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Wendy. If you'll pray with me. Good and gracious God, we know the story so well. But may it resonate in our hearts in, in a new way. May you help us to, to hear the message we need to hear this, this day. Derive ever, ever new, ever evolving meaning from it. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. See, one of my pet peeves about this season is, is just how quickly the world declares it's over. Radio stations that have been playing Christmas music since, since mid-November flip the switch and return to regular programming as soon as December 26th hits. Stores that have stocked their shelves with, with a variety of holiday-themed decorations and foods put it all in a corner-marked clearance as soon as the 26th gets here. Ornaments are being boxed up, Christmas trees already placed on the curb waiting to be recycled, all in defiance of this important fact in the liturgical calendar of the church, 
that Christmas isn't over. It only begins on the 25th. It extends the the next 12 days to Epiphany, the celebration of the arrival of the Magi. I do understand it. I do understand that that the 25th is the big day, and and frankly, I'm not sure what I would do if the secular world were to catch on to the fact that, that Christmas actually has 12 days and try to commercialize these 12 days of Christmas, too. But I think it's important that we, as, as Christians, recognize it. It's important that we give ourselves the time we need to, to live into the story, to live into the season, to know that the blessing and the miracle of the incarnation is more than a one-day, one-time affair that is over before we know it. It strikes me that we put so much time and so much energy into the Christmas celebrations of December 25th, the food and the get-togethers and the gifts that we get distracted and can lose sight of the deeper meaning and and deeper truth of the season. So that's why I'm I'm inviting you to reflect on this this well-known story with me once again. One of the parts that I found myself really thinking about the, the past week are those first five verses, the verses that say, about this time, Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken throughout the empire. This was the first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone had to travel to his own ancestral hometown to be accounted for. So Joseph went from the Galilean town of Nazareth up to Bethlehem in Judah, David's town for the census. As a descendant of David, he had to go there, and he went with Mary, his fiancée, who was pregnant. Beyond the the politics inherent in this story, the, the weight of the Roman Empire looming large over the people of Israel, displacing them, invoking hardship, not just in terms of of taxation, which would have been the purpose of the census, but also requiring this poor couple to take a 10-day journey in the ninth month of pregnancy. I find myself wondering what the event itself must have been like. See, certainly it was, it was chaotic. The, the story itself shows us that when Joseph and Mary arrive, there's no room for them. We can easily imagine Bethlehem being, being extra busy, being overcrowded, being completely unprepared to receive and to accommodate a man of humble means and his wife about to give birth. But I also wonder... I also wonder if at that time there might have been some excitement in the air, some celebration. This is pure speculation. The Bible doesn't speak of it. But, but if everyone's returning to their hometowns, wouldn't that suggest that Joseph would have been surrounded by brothers and, and cousins and aunts and uncles, maybe, maybe people he hasn't seen in years? Would this government-imposed census have created a de facto family reunion all over the town? Could it be that that even as people were returning, resenting the census and resenting Roman rule, they were at the same time celebrating family get-togethers? See, following this line of thinking has has led me to, over the past few days, to do kind of a a census of my own, an accounting of, of all my Christmases past and consider what feelings and experiences they brought. Now, maybe this is more driven by, by middle-aged nostalgia, but, but I find myself reflecting on, on the different places and people and situations that informed my Christmas past, 
the ones that I've celebrated, the, the early, early years filled with joy and, and wonder and the, the magic of it all, going to that small town in, in Iowa my, where my grandparents' home was, was filled with extended family and we'd have to fight over who gets a bed and who gets a couch and who sleeps on the floor. Later years, when the house was a little more empty, where, where even in the midst of the celebrations, the loss of a loved one could be felt by all, Years where, as, as newlyweds, my wife and I were starting to craft family traditions of our own. The year where we discovered on Christmas Eve that soon we'd be having a child of our own. The year where we celebrated Christmas with my mother-in-law from her hospital bed. And the year when she was fully recovered and we could truly celebrate healing in addition to the blessings of the season. See, I know looking back for me, that Christmas can be a, a roller coaster of emotions. The season can be filled with both love and with loss, both with birth and with death, with joy and with sorrow. But through it all, the promise is that God is present. God has a way of showing up when everything is perfectly planned and expected and when everything is a mess and no one is prepared. The promise of Christmas, the celebration at the heart of Christmas is that, is that God is revealed in Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us in those joyful times and in the hard times and in the trying times. Sometimes we might not even see it all that well until well after the fact, but the truth is central to our Christian hope and to our faith. Adam Hamilton, in his book, The Journey, frames the story this way. He writes, this was not a journey that Mary wanted to take. It was not the way she imagined it would be. He goes on to say, we each take unwanted journeys in life. I think of those I know that have been laid off work, those that are battling cancer, a family whose child has struggled with drug addiction, people I see each week whose spouses have left, parents who have lost children. You know plenty of others, I'm sure. Life will have its moments of disappointment, its times of overwhelming sorrow and intense pain. But the good news of the scripture is that God walks with us on those journeys. God redeems them and God brings good from them. He says, in hindsight, we can see what Mary couldn't, that even as she entered the stable, her contractions getting closer and closer, she couldn't yet hear the angels singing. She couldn't see the shepherds running to the stable. She couldn't know the magi were already on their way to pay homage to the king. And she certainly couldn't see that you would be reading this story 2,000 years later, reflecting upon its meaning in your life. See, whatever, wherever life leads us, whatever twists and turns this Christmas has brought or, or has brought you in the Christmases past, whatever difficulties or delights, God's work continues. We might not always understand the timing or the, or the reasons, but we can continue to trust and to hope and to place our faith in that amazing grace that is at the heart of the season. Liz Hoyt tells a, a personal story of, of a Christmas she once experienced in a chapter called Christmas versus a Cold Heart. She tells it like this. She said that Leonard stood in the doorway on that cold December morning, glaring at me defiantly with his angry brown eyes. Gazing at him, I told the caseworker very firmly that I couldn't take another foster child. 
But by supper time that night, Leonard and his blonde six-year-old sister had moved in. I telephoned my husband to explain. He's only eight years old, and, and the other four children will help. It's, it's, it's Christmas. We have to do something, honey. She says her husband just sighed and said, I'll be home early, wimp. It's true, she says, that Leonard stole my heart, but that was just the beginning. Leonard set about stealing toys and books and money from everybody in the family, from our neighbors, from kids in a second grade class. That December, I spent more time in the principal's office than I did in the kitchen. Leonard had watched his mother die in a fire that had erupted in their shack during a drunken brawl. Afterwards, his father began to beat him day after day, telling Leonard he was to blame. Through it all, Leonard was a sole caregiver for his little sister. Stealing food for the two of them was just one of the things he had learned to do so they could survive. I knew I could not feel the depth of Leonard's pain, and he could not know that I would never give up on him, but I wanted to provide the best Christmas he could imagine. Leonard responded by sullenly watching as the family decorated the tree, made gifts for each other, baked cookies. The friends and neighbors Leonard had stolen from pitched in with understanding hearts and provided gifts and money and food for our expanded family. All of the children, two birth and four foster, received equally. We went to church, we sang carols, we read the Christmas story during family devotions, had pictures taken with Santa and took part in school parties and the annual Christmas pageant at church. Nothing touched Leonard. If he addressed me at all, it was to snarl, hey lady, with his rebellious expression never changing, and the few words he uttered were usually punctured by expletives. His anger slowly began to overpower Christmas, and I was helpless to stop the heaviness that settled over our household. The calendar solemnly moved to December 25th. Santa came and we opened presents, but our joy was hollow and forced. We wearily sat down to our Christmas dinner, and I prayed that the day would end with no more pain. My husband was quietly carving the turkey when our 10-year-old birth daughter suddenly remembered a tiny box that had arrived from her grandmother before Christmas, and she couldn't remember opening it. We frantically searched the entire house, but the box was not to be found, and so the day slid from bad to worse. The next morning, a sibling argument broke out, and out of a fit of anger, Leonard yelled at my daughter, I took your stupid box, and it's in my desk at school. What you gonna do about it, crybaby? Tell your old lady and see if I care? During the month of peace on earth, the principal of our large elementary school and I had received, was reached a strained but polite relationship, which included exchanging each other's home phone numbers. He was not pleased to go on a scavenger hunt the day after Christmas, but knowing my fierce foster mother temperament, he agreed to open the school for us. As we arrived at the school, the principal's displeasure was evident. Even the red and green Christmas decorations seemed to mock us as we three trudged silently down the long hall. When we reached the classroom, Leonard stomped across the room, dumped the contents of his messy desk on the floor, and he crawled through the jumble of crayons, books, and papers, marbles, and pencils, and miscellaneous toys, and triumphantly grabbed a small, delicate box. As he shoved it at me, a tiny antique cross fell to the floor. Leonard snarled, so what are you going to do now? Where are you going to take me? When do I leave? And, and or, who are you going to give all those presents to that had my name on them? 
I know I couldn't have kept him. I knowed it all along. She says, I cupped his angry chin in my hand and said quietly, Leonard, the presents are yours to keep, whether you leave or whether you stay. I won't force you to stay, but I want you to be one of my little boys as long as you need me. He stared at me with long, those, for a long time with those captivated brown eyes. And when the sobs started, I reached out and he fell into my arms. We held on to each other tightly as we spent years of pent-up pain pouring out of his tortured soul. The principal stood by silently as if guarding his flock. After a long while, Leonard wiped his face with a dirty hand, sniffled hard, and with a quivering voice said, Can, can we go home now, Mama? She says Christmas was late that year, but it arrived in glowing splendor on the cold floor of an empty schoolroom. I took Leonard home, and the angels sang. So what strikes me about that story is that it not only is a reminder that Christmas can be experienced in, in unexpected times and in unexpected places. It doesn't always happen on, in church. It doesn't always happen on, on December 25th, but it also happens through, through unexpected people. It took a lot of patience and a lot of steadfast love on, on Liz's part to, to help shepherd Leonard to that place where, where he could accept the gift of love that had been given to him. And I'm sure from, from Leonard's perspective, it took a lot of work and a lot of courage to, to finally place his trust in an adult, trust this strange family that he had been placed in to accept the gift of love being, being presented to him. He had a lifetime of being told he was unloved and unworthy, and it can be hard to believe something differently if all that is all you have come to know. Which brings me to the second part of, of this text that's been resonating with me this season. For as after Jesus is born and he's wrapped in bands of cloth and placed in the manger, we are told that there were shepherds nearby in the neighborhood. They had set a night watch over their sheep, and suddenly the angel of the Lord stood among them, and God's glory blazed around them. They were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. A Savior has been born in David's town, a Savior who is the Messiah and the Master. And this is what you're to look for, a baby wrapped in a blanket, laying in a manger. As Adam Hamilton explains, first century shepherds were at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. They were typically uneducated, usually poor, and since they lived among animals and the elements, sometimes smelled of dirty sheep. Because most shepherds do not own land, they graze their flock on the lands of their neighbors. That sometimes created tension. Imagine if your neighbors regularly turn their dogs loose in your yard. He says, shepherds were not tolerated, were, were tolerated but not always esteemed by their neighbors. So when Luke tells us that the shepherds were among the first to be invited to see the Christ child, the first century hearers would not have found this endearing but shocking. The angel made it clear to the shepherds that the good news is for all people, but I can't help but think that it's, it's significant that the first to hear this are among the lowliest, lowliest in society. God, it seems, has a special way of speaking 
of revealing in those most humble circumstances to people that are in positions of powerlessness, people who have been told they're unworthy, people that have been overlooked and forgotten. It's to shepherds and kids like Leonard and each of us in our times of, of desperation and times of darkness that I think God can speak most clearly. There is hope. There is a new thing happening in our very midst if we just leave our comfort zones and seek it out. Turning to Hamilton once more, he says that the angels, the angels were messengers who brought good news from God. In scriptures, the angels most often appear as strangers, indistinguishable from mortals. Sometimes the word angelos is actually used when describing mortals. Luke later tells us in chapter 7, verse 24, that John the Baptist sent messengers, the same word, angelos, to question Jesus. And later in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, Jesus also sent messengers, sent angelos, before him to prepare his way for ministry. Hamilton says, I've never seen a heavenly angel, at least not one that I've recognized, but I've met plenty of earthly angels. I've met people who have come to me just the moment I needed them, offering a word of encouragement or help, or who otherwise blessed and sustained me or guided and directed me. I've had the privilege of being one of those people from time to time, pointing others toward the Savior or in some way embodying the love of God or merely offering encouragement and hope. So in this Christmas season, I find myself wondering, am I a shepherd or an angel? Are you a shepherd? Are you an angel? Of course, there's no reason why we can't be both, even at the same time. For even when we are feeling down and broken, we can be a blessing to others, even when we are being blessed. One more story to share with you. This one from Carol McAdoo-Ream. She says this. She says, Jean ha heaved a heavy world, a world-weary sigh. Tucking a strand of shiny black hair behind her ear, she frowned over the teetering tower of Christmas cards waiting to be signed. What was the point? How could she sign only one name? A couple required two people, and, and she was just one this year. The legal separation from Don had left her feeling vacant and incomplete. Maybe she would just skip the cards this year and the holiday decorating. Truthfully, truthfully, even a tree felt more than she could manage. Christmas was to be shared, and she had no one to share it with. The doorbell started ringing. Padding to, uh, padding to the door in her thick socks, Jean cracked it open against the frigid December night. She peered into the empty darkness of the porch. Instead of a friendly face, there was something she could which was something she could use about now, she only found a jaunty green gift bag perched on the railing. From whom, she wondered, and, and why? Under the bright kitchen light, she pulled out handfuls of shredded gold tinsel, feeling for a gift. Instead, her fingers plucked an envelope from the bottom. Tucked inside was a typed letter. It was, it was a story. The little boy was new to the Denmark orphanage, and Christmas was drawing near, Jean read. Already caught up in the tale, she settled into a kitchen chair. From the other children, he heard tales of a wondrous tree that would appear in the hall on Christmas Eve, and the scores of candles would light its branches. He heard stories of a mysterious benefactor who made it possible each year. 
The little boy's eyes opened wide at the mere thought of all that splendor. The only Christmas tree he had ever seen was through the fogged windows of other people's homes. There was even more, the children insisted. More? Oh, yes. Instead of the orphanage's regular fare of gruel, they would be served fragrant stew and hot, crusty bread that special night. Last and best of all, the little boy learned, each one of them would receive a holiday treat. He would join the long line of children and get his very own. And Jean turned the page, and that's where the story ended. Instead of a continuation, she was startled to read, everyone needs to celebrate Christmas, wouldn't you agree? Watch for part two. She refolded the paper with a faint smile, teasing the corners of her mouth. The next day was so busy that Jean forgot all about the story. That evening, though, when she rushed home from work, she realized if she hurried, she probably might have some, some time to decorate the mantle. She pulled out a box of garland, only to drop it when the doorbell rang. Opening the door, she found herself looking at a red gift bag. She reached for it eagerly and pulled out the piece of paper to get his very own orange, Jean read. An orange? That's, that's the treat, she thought incredulously. An orange of his very own? Yes, the others assured him. There would be one, one apiece. The boy closed his eyes at the wonder of it all. A tree, candles, a filling meal, and an orange of his very own. He knew the smell of that, that sm small, tangy, sweet treat, but he only knew the smell. He had sniffed oranges at the merchant's stall in the marketplace. Once he even dared to, to rub a single finger over the brilliant pocked skin. His fan he fancied for days that his hand still smelled of orange. But to taste one, to eat one, that would be heaven. The story ended abruptly, but Jean didn't mind. She knew that more would follow. The next evening, Jean waited anxiously for the sound of the doorbell, and she wasn't disappointed. This time, though, the embossed gold bag was heavier than the others had been. She tore into the envelope, resting on top of the tissue paper. Christmas Eve was all the children had been promised was all that the children had promised. The piney scent of fur completed the aroma with lamb stew and bread. Scores of candles diffused the room with golden halos. The boy watched in amazement as each child eagerly chimed in, uh, claimed an orange and politely said thank you. The line moved quickly, and he found himself in front of the towering tree with the equally imposing headmaster. Too bad, young man, too bad. But the count was in before you arrived. It seems there are no more oranges. Next time you'll receive an orange. Broken-hearted, the orphan raced up to the stairs, empty-handed to bury both his face and his tears beneath his pillow. Wait, this isn't how the story is supposed to go. Jean felt the boy's pain, his aloneness. And then the boy felt a gentle tap on his back. He tried to still his sobs. The tap became more insistent until at last he pulled his head from underneath the pillow. He smelled it before he even saw it. A cloth napkin rested on his mattress, and tucked inside was a peeled orange, tangy sweet. It was made of the segments saved from the others, a slice donated from each child. Together they added up to make one whole complete fruit, an orange of his very own. Jean swiped at the tears trickling down her cheeks. From the bottom of the gift bag, she pulled out an orange, a foil-covered chocolate orange candy, already separated into segments. 
and for the first time in weeks, she smiled. Jean really smiled. She set about making copies of the story, wrapping the individual slices of, of the chocolate orange. There was Mrs. Potter across the street spending her first Christmas in 58 years alone. There was Melanie down the block facing her second round of radiation. There was her running partner, Jan, a single parent with a difficult teen. There was Mr. Bradford losing his eyesight and Sue, the sole caregiver, to an aging mother. A piece from her might help to make one whole. See, Christmas isn't over. In fact, it's, it's never really over. No power in the world can, can box it up and, and put it away for another year. God is always breaking through. God is always entering in. God is always surprising us and blessing us. In the good times and in the trying times, the God who has the power to change hearts and offers steadfast love and grace isn't done on December 25th or the 26th or the 27th. God continues to walk with each of us each and every day. Each and every day we can be reminded that we are shepherds in need of blessing and we are angels equipped to offer the good news to those in need. Christmas, my friends, my brothers and sisters, isn't over. Know that you are loved. Know that you are loved this day and in the year ahead. May you continue to love and may you continue to bless others. Amen.